You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Thank you for joining us for part three of the Jane Doe January Trilogy. Jane Doe January is a memoir of the cold case prosecution of a serial rapist written by one of his victims. Emily Winslow was raped by a stranger when she was a drama student in Pittsburgh in 1992. Then, in 2013, more than 20 years later, DNA analysis prompted the identification and arrest of Arthur Fryer for the crime. By then, Emily had moved to England, where she was a happily married mother of two, writing detective novels set in her new home in Cambridge. In Jane Doe January, she tells the true story of the crime and prosecution in her own life. Now, Emily will set the scene for an excerpt from the audiobook edition of Jane Doe January. Pittsburgh has a beautiful courthouse, but the preliminary hearing of our case was not held there. Preliminary hearings are held in municipal court for the purpose of establishing if the prosecution has enough evidence to justify scheduling a proper trial at the main courthouse, which is considered an architecturally significant and tourist-worthy building. In contrast, the municipal courthouse has broken elevators, informal courtrooms, and one long line of witnesses, plaintiffs, and defendants from all of the hearings scheduled that day, all waiting their turn. Because of the significant charges in our case, we were allowed to wait upstairs, above the line, but not seen any faster. We were there for hours, not even in a room, just in the hallway. There, I met our case's other victim for the first time. She was with her husband. Also upstairs were two victim advocates who had been sent from Pittsburgh Action Against Rape, one for each of us. The original detective from my case, Bill Valenta, was with me. He was retired from the police, now an assistant dean at the University of Pittsburgh, and his participation in the hearing was unusual. Retired detectives aren't usually involved. He was there because I'd asked him to be. My current detective, Dan Honan, was there to testify, and his wife had surprised us all by showing up too. I'd felt distant from Detective Honan, and she had come to tell me how much the case meant to him, how much it meant that I'd flown all the way from England to testify, and how much he cared, even though he didn't show it. April Campbell, the other victim's detective, was there too. I had just met our prosecutor, Assistant District Attorney Kevin Chernosky. We two victims had each taken a quick turn with him, preparing to testify. It had felt rushed. Arthur Fryer, the man whose DNA had been matched to my evidence, was being held elsewhere in the building. I was about to have to see him and his defense attorney. I hadn't been able to eat breakfast and almost fainted while waiting. Then the waiting was done. We're all called into court. The room is downstairs, very plain, just rows of stackable chairs lined up to face a high area in the front for the judge and two assistants. The judge looks youngish and is wholly bald, leaning back in his big swivel chair like a throne. He looks powerful and a little bored. Reminds me of Lex Luthor, and chews gum the entire time. I sit between Bill and my victim advocate. Dan's wife sits behind us and holds my handbag for me for when I testify. She pokes her head between me and the advocate and points to the screened-off area in the corner to the right of the judge. That's where Fryer is. 
Do you know what that's called? That sort of cubby where they keep the criminal? She asks. Bill and the advocate and I all demur. She whispers fiercely, I call it the cubby of shame. There are glimpses of Fryer huddling with his defense attorney, flashes of his bright jail uniform, but no tug in my gut. I'm not afraid of him. I'm curious about him. I'm curious about my reaction to him. He's old now. Old, old, not adult old like me. Across the room feels very far away, safely so. We've swapped. Now he's the one who has to defend himself. It's decided to go chronologically, January before November, so, after a group swearing in, I testify first. There's no seat or box or fancy setup. We go up together to stand before the judge, with our backs to the rest of the room. We stand in a line, me, Bill, Dan, Kevin the prosecutor, the defense attorney, and the defendant. April's attached to the other woman's case, not mine, so she stays seated. Kevin positions himself, kind of leaning, to block me from having to see Fryer while I speak. It's all fine. I'm glad we practiced. I'm glad we carefully chose the words to use. It's just like it was in the pin the tail on the donkey office, except that when it's over, there's cross-examination. The defense attorney's questions try to pin me down to a physical description that he'll later be able to dispute. Our case is based on DNA, not eyewitness identification, so though I do in fact recognize Fryer, this whole road is just an unnecessary diversion to try to catch me out. I don't fall for it. I'd read advice about this very thing, about defense attorneys prying for non-essential details, the kind of details that aren't really the point, so the witness won't have prepared for them in hope of mining a contradiction. It's important not to let the natural social form of at least trying to answer direct questions prompt me to guess at anything I'm not absolutely certain of. I say I don't know to most things. Did he have a beard? Was his hair gray or dark? That's not what I remember. I remember his round cheeks, his babyish face. I remember him as big. That's what I'd told the police, because he'd seemed huge to me. He'd been powerful. I worry now that that could be used against me, because I can see in court clearly that he's not. I'd been warned that he'd lost weight in jail. But it's not just that. He's taller than me, yes, but shorter than my detectives and lawyer. I literally cannot even see him when he's behind them. The defense attorney points out that it was evening and asks if it was dark in my apartment. I don't know. Was a light on? I don't know. Well, he says in a folksy, skeptical tone, was there really any opportunity to get a good look at his face? Something fills me up.
My voice hardens, solidifies from the quivering, careful tone of the rest of my testimony, and I bellow at him, yes, while it was bobbing up and down in front of mine while he was fucking me. No more questions. We return to our seats. I glance at the two newspaper reporters nervously. I sit through the rest of it and hate every moment. Dan's next, clarifying how the case was investigated these recent months. The defense attorney fishes around for information about the original investigation, asking if that detective is still with the police or even still alive. I nudge Bill with my elbow, and we all titter. Then there's Georgia and April, and the criminalist from the lab. I thought I'd be asked to step out when the other victim speaks, but I never am. It turns out that, officially, we're still two separate cases, so I'm as welcome in the room as anyone else. The only time Fryer has any apparent interest or animation at all is when April recounts her interrogation of him in New York. He's leaning in to talk to his lawyer and seems agitated about what April's claiming he said. It doesn't matter. I close my eyes. I whisper to Bill that as soon as we're allowed, I want to get out of here. Predictably, probable cause is considered established and the case bound over for trial. The defense requests that the $400,000 bail be lowered. Kevin requests that it be raised. Lex Luthor casually doubles it to $400,000 for each victim. We all stand and mill in the aftermath, debriefing before facing the hallway. There's a cameraman out there. I'm torn between wanting to get away and wanting to hide in this room forever. Kevin tells me and Georgia that we did a good job. I'm assured that my outburst was on point and did no harm. There's lots of verbal backpatting and smug nods over the bail rise. The arraignment, where the accused will be formally told the charges against him and asked for his plea, and pre-trial conference, neither of which requires me, are scheduled together for March 13th, at which time a trial date will be set. April, who had slipped out into the hall, comes back and tells us, her face stuck half between shock and laughter, that Dan's wife is out there berating the defense attorney. She hadn't liked how he'd treated me on the stand. The hallway is long. I try to walk normally, but it's hard to do while a huge video camera dogs my feet. Bill puts his hand on my back to push me along faster. When we get outside, the air is full of swirls of falling snow. Bill and I leave the others and walk to a cafe in a glass atrium from which I can watch the pretty weather. I worry that between the cash register and table, I'll drop my cup of tea from my shaking hands. Back at the hotel, in the lobby between the elevators, I thank Bill again and ask him to thank his wife for lending him to me. He says that she's never seen this side of his work before. She's never met a victim from one of his cases, and that last night's dinner meant something to her. 
I jump up to hug him around the neck, and he hugs back. He says, this was good. This was, this was good for me, too. He chokes up and cries. I leave this home and return to my other one. This sense of moving between homes started when I was in Pittsburgh as a freshman in college in 1989. Going back to my parents' house in New Jersey for Thanksgiving had been, of course, going home. Then, strangely, returning to my dorm room four days later had also become going home. Since then, New England and Silicon Valley have also become home, and eight years ago, England, too. I want Cambridge. I want my kids. I want Gavin. I get back to the house at 8 a.m. after flying all night, and he's arranged for a friend to look after the boys so that I can sleep all morning and he can lie next to me. The images that stay with me are specific physical things. Bill's martini, the broken elevators, the judge chewing gum. Most of all, I remember standing in that line before the judge with Bill, Dan, and Kevin between me and Friar. They're so big, and Friar is so insignificant that I couldn't see him behind them, either literally in the courtroom or figuratively now. Everyone good seems much more important. The success of the preliminary hearing was just the beginning of the prosecution, which would extend another nine months and continue to surprise me. Besides all of the legal processes ahead in Pittsburgh, there was much ahead for me in my new home of Cambridge, England. In my experience, there are two storylines that follow a trauma such as this rape. The story of dealing with the person who caused it, which in this case took the form of the prosecution, and the story of how the trauma affects every other relationship in the victim's life. Besides this being the story of the prosecution of Arthur Fryer, it's the story of the way I was treated by the police, and by the prosecutors and defense attorneys, and by my university. It's the story of how my friends and family coped, and of what I demanded of them. It's the story of how I changed, and how other people had to change around me because of it. Turning this into a book has been cathartic, but not only because of telling the truth about private things. It's been cathartic because I've been able to shape the telling of the story. Unlike with the novels I write, I couldn't choose the facts of this story. What happened, what I did, what others did, that's all true. That was given to me. But in the telling of it, I was able to decide where the story starts and ends, to choose what's important and what should be mentioned only in passing. I got to use my own words. I feel very lucky to be a writer. Thank you for joining us for the final episode of the Jane Doe January Trilogy. All episodes are available at harperaudiopresents.com. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.